The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fittendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Kate Spider. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing a half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, uh, my friend. Okay. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. A little program designed to help you get your mojo working in or out of work. As is the case every week, we just look to find interesting people who we think have their mojo working in some aspect of their life and we chat to them to find out what they're doing, how they do it, what their opinion is on life, stuff that we can take, apply to our own world to get our mojo working or perhaps if you know somebody who doesn't have their mojo working, flick them the show or share the info. It's nice to have you on the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. If you are liking what we are doing here, just put a one-liner onto iTunes. And what that does is it just sends us up the rankings and helps other people find the show, people who we don't know, who you don't know. And we all together can get our mojo working, make the place a better place to live in. Uh, Before we start the show, around the grounds, AP, you're present? Present and correct, sir. (laughs) Maybe in body, but I'm not sure in my in spirit. He'd love mind. a present. He'd love he he'd love, love more present. presents. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, good morning, Lola. Hello, boys. I'm going to try this. Did you have a nice weekend, Lola? What's a weekend? <laughs> and our El Capitane driving the big red bus. We call the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome, Robbo. Beep beep. How are you? Are you in footy season right now? We are in footy season. Yeah, absolutely. How's so, the, how are the withered oaks going? The uh, what is the, what's this? The under sixties, uh, over seventies? No, no, that's the the sixty one A's. Yeah, that's right. Sixty one. Uh, <laughs> Classic. Who would have thought? Yeah, no, we're doing really well, actually. Thank you. Yeah, we're having a good season, which is nice. Plenty of, and, and it's always good to, you know. I mean, the, the the thing for us is how many guys are still standing after fifty minutes. You know, so you know. There's still a third of us on the pitch at full time, so that's a good start. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. Without knowing it, the 61As is what our show is all about today. But before we get to that, um, I got some mail during the week and I was a bit shocked but heartened by it. I got an email from Stan Peak. Now, you remember our good Canadian mate, Stan Peak? Of course. How could I forget the Peakmeister? The Peakinator. Peakinator. And he and another former guest of ours, Kat Brownlee, wrote a book called How to Sell in Any Economy. Mm. And I had had an email from one of our listeners, which I passed on to Stan. 
saying how much you enjoyed the book. But then I hadn't heard from Stan in about three, maybe four months. And then I got this. Believe it or not, right after our email exchange, I had a heart attack and it put me out of commission for a while. Wow. Well, his note said, you know, basically he said, get checked, my friend. This is how Stan talks. I love it. He said, get checked, my friend. I'm a healthy guy who worked in the fitness industry for 18 years Mm -hmm. and he works out every day, yet he had a 100% blockage in one of his arteries. Wow. So uh, Stan's a great mate of the show. He is one of the Mm. most giving, most empathetic, most just smart guys we've had on the show. He's become a good mate. Even though he's in Canada, we're here in Australia, he's become a good mate of the show cannot do enough for us. So I just thought it was worthwhile sharing that because Mm. there's a great lesson in that, uh, in that even though you think you're going good, you should get checked out. Absolutely. Uh, And we wish him all the best, don't we? Absolutely. I learned that exact same lesson about eight years ago, nine years ago now. Exactly the same thing. Woke up in the morning, felt a bit uncomfortable in the chest, just like I'd slept wrong. Said to the missus, oh, look, you know, I know this sounds stupid, but I'm just going to duck up to the emergency at the public hospital and just get this checked out when it didn't go away. And sure enough, not a major heart attack, but a, a small little artery down the bottom of my heart was was clogged and I was having a minor heart attack. So um, there you go. It just goes to show how easily it can happen and, you know. Not There's a lesson to... in that for all of us kiddies. Just watch how many Tim Tams you have because yeah, you can get right. blockages. <laughs> Absolutely. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Our guest this week is a bit of a legend in the wellness world. He's 72 years old and he's still getting after it, as you'll hear. And he's being sought after by the biggest media networks in the world because of his opinion on health and longevity. Johnny Bowden is an author. He's written several best-selling books, including Living Low Carb and The Great Cholesterol Myth. And he's highly recognised the guy, and this is, this is what I like about Johnny, is he is a stud at 72, but he's also the guy who's not afraid to bust the nutritional myths that we've been fed and we live by, all in all, he just wants to make us better in every way. Now, Johnny, as we'll cover off here, has had a very dark past, but it's fair to say that today what he's all about and his absolute mission is to create us a bright future. So with all that being said, Johnny Bowden, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you for having me, man. This is a pleasure. I, I, I have these people in Australia who know of my work and I'm always so delighted when they do it. I get called occasionally. I did a, a documentary one that was produced by the Australian Broadcasting Company. So I, I've never been to Australia, but I love you guys and I so appreciate <laughs> <laughs> you know of me and that you're, you know, interested enough in my work to want to talk to me. So I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start there, Johnny. If people walk up to you in LA and say, g'day, and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Oh, my God. Um, I try to help people get healthy. And the first thing that I, the first order of business usually is to try to help them empty their mind of everything that they ever learned about nutrition and health because most <laughs> of them <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you, there's actually, there's a wonderful little parable. If you don't mind, I'll tell it to you. Yeah. Because it really is what my job has been. 
And it's a parable about a guy who wants to become a Zen monk. He wants to study with this famous master. So he goes to the master. He says, master, please, can you teach me about Zen? And the master says, I'd be happy to do that. Would you like a cup of tea? And the student says, sure. And he takes out a cup and the master starts to pour and pour and pour. And the tea just overflows the cup. And the student is standing there. He doesn't want to be insulting. And he says, master, I, I feel I should point out that the cup is overflowing. It won't hold any more tea. And the Zen master says, precisely. And that is what your mind is like when it comes to Zen. And until you empty it of everything that's in it, I can never fill it with what's real about Zen. <laughs> and that's how I feel about nutrition. And I mean, half my battle with people, and I, I don't work with people one-on-one -on -one anymore, but when I did, and even when I speak with audiences, I feel that half of the challenge is getting them to forget the shit that they have learned because most of it is just not so. And, you know, I guess nowhere more... Uh, a clear is that than in, in the area of cholesterol and heart disease. But, mm. you know, there's plenty of places where, where we can point to misinformation. So I feel like my job is myth-busting. It's interesting, Johnny, because where I, I came across you, you were doing an interview with Jay Ferrugia, who I'm, I'm talking or interviewing in a couple of weeks' time. And what really got me about the work you do is at the age of 72, you look fantastic. You have more energy than most 35-year-olds. And what I'm curious about is at what point in your own psychology did you start to think about age or ageism? Where, where did that actually become a thing where you started to myth-bust about age? That's one of the more interesting questions I've been asked. I'm not sure where that started. Um, I, I, you know what? I, I don't. I don't know the exact turning point. You know, I, I'll be very, very transparent about this. Um, I have been on hormone replacement therapy since 1999. And when I started it, I was a trainer at Equinox. I just started in the field. I was maybe, I started in, in this field in 1990. And I started as a, as a personal trainer and, and a floor trainer, actually, at a very famous gym uh, in the United States called Equinox. And um, I, I think that, uh, so I was already not in bad shape. I knew enough to train people. I knew enough nutrition to kind of be a little ahead of the, you know, at the time, the only nutrition that personal trainers got, the only nutrition education we got was at the hands of the American Dietetic Association. I don't know if you have an organization like that in Australia, but they really, really and they were, they were the handmaiden of the American uh, Medical Association. They never had an original thought. They didn't think supplements did anything. They promoted high-carb diets, low-fat diets, all of that stuff. And we, I believed it. I mean, that's what we learned. So um, I, I think what happened is I was in fairly decent shape. You know, I was maybe 50, something like that, 52. Um, and I start going on hormone replacement therapy. And I honestly don't think I noticed very much in the beginning. I thought, well, this sounds nice. I guess it's a good thing. It you know has good data and probably going to work. And I didn't really notice how much it was working until like a decade or more went by. And I started to notice I don't feel much different than I did 20 years ago. And I'm kind of at this weight. And I'm watching people who I grew up with and they don't kind of look like me or act like or they don't even talk like they are experiencing life like I am. It's not a matter of how I look. It's a matter of like, I go to play tennis with guys in from literally from age 15 to age 87. 
Uh, I'm an avid tennis player and I've got a, a very wide group. And and the older guys, many of whom are older than me, many of whom are younger than me, come in all the time and tell me they feel old. I've never felt old in a day in my life. I don't even know what it feels like. So, um, I, I, you know, I guess I began, I, I don't think it started as questioning myths about aging. I think it started questioning conventional wisdom in general. And obviously, I started in my own field when I learned in the in the nineties that maybe a high carb, low fat diet wasn't all we thought it was. I started kind of you know questioning a lot of conventional wisdom, and I've been a conventional wisdom questioner for probably you know since childhood. So that it came very naturally to me. And then I started looking at some of the other myths that had to do with health besides cholesterol and besides low fat diets and and besides the notion that you had to do two hours of exercise a day to burn calories and all that other stuff i started looking at some of the notions we had about aging and about uh sexuality and about um you know roles in in society i mean i thought there's there's anywhere you want to look you can find myths (laughs) and i i guess i some of those and as i began to i feel like my my most productive my most financially rewarding and certainly my most personally rewarding decade has been the last 10 years so when i started experiencing things like that my 60s mid 60s late 60s this isn't normal (laughs) so it's certainly not what people think is normal and since I'm doing, I'm a big believer in the black swan theory. You know, if you have a theory that all swans are white, you only need one swan to be black to disprove the theory that all swans are, are white. I, I am certainly not alone. I mean, Jack LaLanne was in his 80s and pulling tugboats across the San Francisco Bay. And, you know, there are people in phenomenal shape, much older than me. And so clearly you don't have to, there is more than one way to age. And I think that the idea that, you know, we're just getting old, not much we can do about it, and things just slow down, and it's just bullshit. <laughs> and and I, I think I'm living proof of it. I don't think you need a whole lot of people to feel that way in order to say, well, wait, what about this cohort over here? Let's take a look and see what kinds of things actually slow us down as we get older. And maybe we have a little more, maybe there's a little bit more latitude in there than most of us have assumed there was. You know, I have a slide that I use when I speak all the time, and it is a picture of a gun. And what it says is, genes load the gun, but what we do pulls the trigger. That's gold. That's gold. Gold, Gold, right? It's absolutely gold. It's fantastic. I didn't make it up. I mean, I got it somewhere 20 years ago. (laughs) It's genes environment pulls the trigger so you know i'm asked all the time about that what's the contribution of genes and actually we know the answer to that in most cases if you take an average genes account for about 20 percent of whatever happens well that's a big freaking percent that is unaccounted for by genes you know i i think of genes as poker hands you can give a shitty player a poker hand and you can give one of those world champion of poker players a hand and they can have the same crappy hand one guy or one woman knows exactly what to do with that hand and turns it into a million dollar pot and the other mm. one is like so it ain't the hand that you're dealt i mean in some cases i don't mean to dismiss them people have been born with some horrible situations that are not 
necessarily fixable by their actions. And, and there are some genes that like, if you get that gene, man, you got the disease and there is not, um, you know, cystic fibrosis being one of them, uh, sickle cell anemia being another. So nobody's saying that, you know, we have control over everything. But I think that for most of us, we have more control than we might think we do. I just finished reading a book, Johnny, by Pat Flynn, and it was called How to Be Better at Almost Everything. And the premise of that book was about skill stacking and being a generalist as opposed to being a specialist. And I finished it last night and knowing I was going to be speaking to you today, I was just curious about this because if I look back through your career working at Equinox, being a musician, which I'll talk about later, having a PhD in psychology, nutrition. No, 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 I have a PhD in nutrition and a master's in psychology. Master's in psychology. I didn't get the PhD in psychology. (laughs) But uh, I did go for a master's in psychology. But yes, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were on a wonderful roll there talking about. Well, no, you've, you've got all these skills which you're stacking. And that allows you then to have a wide understanding of a lot of things to bring value to people. I'm just wondering, the psychology part with, the, with what you're seeing and the people you're talking to right now and the wisdom you have over 70-odd years, how big a part is the psychology part in our wellness and health? It's a pretty big double-digit percentage, I'd say. I mean, mm. um, it's. It, it, I don't know that you can actually percentize it out, but it is enormous, enormous. Look, I often used to ask audiences, how many of you would like to lose five pounds or 10 pounds? The entire audience raises their hand. I don't care who you're talking to, right? Then I say, how many of you know what you need to do to do that? The Almost the entire audience raises their hand. The third question I ask is, and how many of you are doing it? And then everybody sort of gets a sheepish smile and looks around the room. And it's like, <laughs> information, man, is all over the place. It's, it's putting it into practice and getting past whatever barriers you have to actually living that information. That's where the challenge is. So I always say that weight loss, health, whatever you want to talk about as a goal, is a three-legged stool. You know, there's food and there's exercise, but there's compliance. There's utilizing the information. Mm. There's uh, willingness to accept it like that Zen master thing. If you, you know, willingness to pour the cup uh, out and start again and go, okay, teach me. Let me see what this is. Oh, you know, I've often said there is not a smoker in America, and I'm sure this is true worldwide, who didn't get the memo about smoking causes cancer. But nobody gets that information. And this is, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Let me throw away my cigarettes. I'll never smoke again. No, we're all addicts. <laughs> so, you know, the information is one part of it. But when you ask what's the psychology, it's everything. It's everything else. Just on that part of it, if we, if we take the psychology part, and I think that story about being in front of an audience, uh, that completely makes sense to me. I've heard you talk about Dan Butner's work with the Blue Zones and... I've heard you discuss the blue zones. If we go from you get your psychology right, you are now going to finish the show and do something about it. Talk me through the four types of food that we should be including in our diet every single day based on the blue zones and Dan Butner's work. Because the reason I think it's so profound is I heard you say that if we include these four food groups 
in our daily diet, yeah. you're probably going to add a half a dozen years to our life expectancy. So if there's nobody you know needs what you're talking to, you're going. I know where you're going. Love it. I love it. I love it. I have uh, somewhat narcissistically and egotistically named them the Johnny Bowden poor food groups, but of course they're not. <laughs> Um, but I refer to them in, in books that way. <laughs> and it's the simplest thing in the world. Um, and before I tell you what they are, I'm going to tell you how I got them. I had a wonderful nutrition mentor, a great nutritionist. He's dead now, Robert Crayon. He taught many of the health girls, if you will call them that, in, in the United States. And he used, to have, he used to have a very vivid description of how you figure out what's healthy to eat. He says, here, do this thought exercise. You're naked on the African Serengeti with nothing but a sharp stick. What can you eat? <laughs> and the answer, the answer is the four food groups. Food you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. End of story. And if it's in one of those groups, with some exceptions, you know, a toxic mushroom, with, if it's in one of those four groups, 99.99% of the time, it's going to be a damn healthy food for a human being. Food you could fish gather a buck. And and it's a very simple standard to apply. Um, you know, you go back to some of the more successful diets like the autoimmune protocol or the paleo autoimmune protocol or any of these things. You know, all they're doing is using real food. My major message to general consumers, they all want to know like what percentage should be protein and what percentage should be fat. And if I'm going on keto, how many days? They all want to know these details. And I said the most important way more important than any of that stuff, whether you're on a low-carb, high-carb, vegan, one thing, eat real food. And how do you define real food? Very simple. Would your great-great-great-great-grandmother have recognized this as food? You know, in the blue, you mentioned Dan Brutner showed some of these um, older, the elder women in their 90s in the blue zones, some of our modern foods, and they looked at them like, what do you do with this? What is, what is this? <laughs> The, you know, the, the, the Okinawa women do not recognize a Lunchable. <laughs> I don't even know if you guys but it's like the worst, worst, crappiest, you know, <laughs> you know, packaged frozen meal. Um, so that's not real food. Real food spoils if you leave it outside. We, real food, you know, is stuff, like I said, that, that, that a couple of generations ago would have recognized as food. And that doesn't include, I don't know, a large percentage of what we eat regularly in industrial nations. Johnny, how should we measure our health, at the success of our health? Because we uh, quite often, something you've talked about, is that quite often we, we think it's about weight loss. And for others, it's about how we look. For others, it's about how much energy we've got. I mean, I, I'm curious into your, your view of how should somebody listen to this right now? How should they gauge their own health and wellness? Boy, you, you're asking, I've got a comment that this is, pro, these are probably the most interesting questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> Do these usually by road and nobody asks explorative, really <laughs> thought-provoking questions like that. I mean, it's in the class of book. We were talking earlier about Peter Atiyah, who we both admire so much. I mean, these are great questions. Um, how do you measure your own health? Well, first of all, I think I would ask out of curiosity, why do you want to? Because when you think about it, you know, yeah, sure, we'd love to have some objective measure. But really how people care, what people care about is I think how they feel. Mm. And if you 
really healthy. Uh, I mean, yes, you could make the argument that, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on under the hood that you don't know about. The first symptom of a heart attack is, uh, I mean, a a heart disease is sometimes a heart attack and um, one third of the diabetics in the world are are undiagnosed. So it's not just about how you feel, but I actually do think, are you enthusiastic about stuff or you just can't wait to go to bed? These are the things that really, I think, determine how healthy you live and as, as evidenced by that study with the old guys. If you had asked those guys how healthy they were when they left, I'm sure they would have rated themselves a lot healthier than when they went in. That's such an interesting word though, Johnny, enthusiasm, to measure your wellness and health based on your enthusiasm. Because it would seem a lot of us are just getting through our day. And if we do go to watch our children play sport, we're turning up. But we don't turn up with a huge amount of enthusiasm. And I'd even say, you know, we'll talk about the bedroom shortly, but I'd say a lot of people are going through the motions with that part of the bedroom, but they don't actually look forward to it with true enthusiasm of I'm virile and ready to do this. Or their work day, they're walking into meetings and going through things, but there's no true enthusiasm It's kind of a necessity. But when you are in the zone and you really have got your mojo working and you're feeling healthy and well, it is a different feeling. And you do approach those things with true enthusiasm. And that's, I don't know, I I like the premise of that because it's, it's it's an auditable thing. You can say, what is my level of enthusiasm toward a conversation, a meeting with somebody? Because you'd have to say that when you have got your lane working and you do feel amazing, you bring enthusiasm to pretty much everything you do. So that, I think that's a cracker. I, I love how you just put that. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I was just thinking of, for some reason, Stephen Hawking's popped into my mind, you know, the great astrophysicist who wrote the, you know, you all know who he is, I yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yep. He died recently, had an ALS. And of course, his lifespan was supposed to be under like 25. I mean, how he lived to 70, I don't know. But I didn't know him, but I knew people who had been around him and I sort of read things period, you know, periodically about him. This guy lived in the most awful circumstance. You can't even, can you imagine ALS? You're communicating with a tube in your to make sounds, to spell out letters, I, I I would say pass me the morphine and get me off this planet. I can't imagine. <laughs> apparently, apparently this guy was had the greatest sense of humor. He engaged with people constantly. He had a young girlfriend. I don't know how that happens, but I would say that he was in horrible physical health. But you know, you got to, any measure of health has got to incorporate some of this other stuff that you and I are talking about right now. Because it gives a very incomplete picture. Um, if you looked at Stephen Hawking's from all the physical uh, metrics that, that we might use, he probably was a mess. But if you looked at him and you factored in his enthusiasm for life, the projects he took on late, you know, with that stupid tube. It's like, I can't even imagine. You hear how I talk fast. If I had to spell everything out, like on an old flip phone, you know, but you have to, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'd go nuts. And I, so we got to look at that guy and people like that and say, there's more to help than just blood tests. And that's really saying here. Something I'd like you to talk about, Johnny, is inflammation. And I heard you say chronic inflammation 
is something that is now leading us to many of our degenerative diseases. So I'd like you to talk about inflammation, but what I'd also like to know is if there's somebody listening to this show right now, they buy into our conversation, you can convince them inflammation is something they need to address. The question is, how would somebody know that they have an inflamed system? How would they know they have inflammation or chronic inflammation? Is there a a means to know that would be something that would tell them, actually, that's me right now and I need to address this? Well, that's the problem with inflammation. It comes in two flavors. Uh, One is called acute inflammation, and everybody knows when you have that. That's when you stub your toe or you get a, a, a... terrible toothache and an abscess or an abscess in the skin or, you know, some real annoying, visible, achy thing that is clearly inflamed. We all know what that is. That's acute inflammation. You don't have to do any tests to find it. You've got that. The problem is there's a second flavor of inflammation called chronic inflammation. And that unfortunately is not um, something that we have, uh, knowledge of. It's happening under the hood. And as my friend Barry Sears, the author of The Zone, said, um, chronic inflammation, I'm sorry, acute inflammation hurts. Chronic inflammation kills. So how do we know that we have it? I can guarantee you, everybody listening to this, if you're breathing air, you've got inflammation in your body. Everybody does. There are just 80,000 things we're exposed to every day that are inflammatory. So the, the idea of getting rid of inflammation completely is nonsense. And, and it's a lovely aspirational thought. What we're talking about here is, 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 um, is management, is crisis management. Because inflammation, chronic inflammation, the sort we're talking about, the under the hood kind that happens in the artery walls and, and, and in the brain and in other places, that, that stuff does its insidious damage like a virus on a computer. You don't even notice it's in there stealing files and doing all kinds of stuff. And you're, oh, this computer works great until, you know, until you get the big crash and you find out that there's all this malware on your computer. That's kind of what inflammation does. It, 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 uh, and, and really, uh, the best assumption is that we all have it. There are ways to monitor it with blood tests. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good. We've got inflammatory cytokines you can measure and uh, CRP, which is a general measure of inflammation throughout the body. Homocysteine, these are all things that can be done on a blood test if you have a, a good, you know, kind of modern doctor. That, um, but I think the, the basic thing that we can do about it, and I, I'll explain how it works if you want me to in a minute, yeah. but, but trust me, it's... It promote for the, the 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 overview is that inflammation promotes or it is a promoter of or in some cases even a causal factor of every major degenerative disease on the planet. Let me include all of them: diabetes, obesity, cancer, arthritis, uh, ob- uh, heart disease even Alzheimer's. Look at the, uh, my medical friends say, do an autopsy on the brains of Alzheimer's, you'll see plaques and tangles and inflammation. And, and, and so the point is, it's really a promoter of everything you don't want to do and have. So, uh, and how it does that, we can certainly go into the, you know, what, what happens under the hood with it, but it goes hand in hand with something that people are also familiar with, which is oxidative damage. And that, that is, you know, free radicals from oxygen basically oxidize things. Like if you cut an apple and you leave it out on the picnic table and you leave it overnight, it's going to turn brown. That's oxidation. If you tap some metal and you leave it out in the rain overnight of two nights, it's going to start to have rust. 
that's oxidation. Well, that happens in our body. And it goes hand in hand with inflammation. What happens, for example, with uh, certain molecules of cholesterol is once they get there and stuck in there and they, they cause an inflammatory reaction and they get attacked by free radicals and the free radicals and the oxidation causes more inflammation. And it's, they're just the twin towers of bad stuff happening. And, uh, and, and what can we do about it is, well, we can, first of all, avoid the most inflammatory things that we're exposed to. Number one inflammatory food in the American diet is sugar. Let me repeat that. Number one source of dietary inflammation is sugar. Number two, or right up there with number one, are the vegetable oils that the low-fat people kept telling us to, to consume because they're so much healthier than saturated fat. We didn't even get into that yet. But um, vegetable oils are extremely pro-inflammatory, and, and we consume them in conservatively in a ratio of 16 to 1 uh, in ratio with the omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory. So you want to kind of avoid the most inflammatory things like vegetable oils, or seed oils, corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, all that crap oil, soybean oil. And you want to, at the same time, avoid inflammatory foods like sugar. Um, gluten for many people, I'm unwilling to say for everyone in the world, but certainly for many people, grains are inflammatory. And then we have all the toxins that we're exposed to in the air and in the water and on foods and pesticides. And then we have stress, which is very inflammatory. So we're stressed out people exposed to 80,000, you know, bad things in the environment, eating crappy food. Of course, we have inflammation. And how we limit it is, again, being more cautious about the foods that we eat. Uh, eating an anti-inflammatory diet. There are wonderful anti-inflammatories all throughout the food kingdom. And, you know, I don't know anyone, even on the vegan side of things or the low-carb side of things, who doesn't advocate for an anti-inflammatory diet. We may differ a little bit about what to include in that, but everybody has that as a goal. There's nobody on the spectrum who doesn't, uh, I mean, I think you Joel Berman on this show, who's my like my nemesis in terms of like you know being the opposite end of the spectrum, and and you'll still get complete agreement on the anti-inflammatory, the need of the diet to be anti-inflammatory, um, and and so I would say you know the most anti-inflammatory diet you can consume and the best anti-inflammatory uh, supplements such as fish oil, you know, are a good good start to trying to keep chronic inflammation at bay. There, you mentioned the word stress, Johnny, and there's no doubt we live in a world right now where people are just trying to keep up. There is stress at every part of our world, in, in and out of work. What, what don't we know about the impact that stress is having on us, Johnny? From your observations, what are the stuff that we hear about a lot, we know how we should manage it, but what are the, what's the stuff that really is a myth, there's the biggest myth that we don't know about how stress oh. is impacting us. Um, it's, it's funny that you ask me this because I'm about to record three online courses in June, which will be online forever. And, and there is a chapter, there's a lesson in each of, of in two of these courses on this very subject. And it, it, there's just so much to say about it. I don't even know where to start, except that I guess the, I, here, let's, let's do a couple of take-home bullet points. Stress isn't all in your brain. It may start in the hypothalamus with a reaction to, you know, with the brain on some lizard level kind of senses a danger. But there is a hormonal consequence, a hormonal progression that happens with stress. And while all, I think one thing to know going right into it is that all stress isn't bad. 
If you take lab animals, um, and I'm no fan of these kinds of experiments, but if you take lab animals and you expose them, you know, growing rats or mice to um, cold water for a short time, they do great because they are stressed and they are able to get out of it and their little immune system gets stronger and every, you know, that's, that's good stress. That's what we do. What do you do when you build biceps? You're stressing the muscle, you're breaking them down. And then what happens after they grow back stronger and bigger. So when they're, but if you were to uh, try to do a bicep curl with 370 pounds and rip every muscle, that wouldn't, that would be kind of overkill. So what you want to do with stress is have the little bits of stress that come up about because they strengthen you. The problem is <laughs> when the stress hormones are on all the time. So stress hormones are like first gear on a car. Um, they signal, uh-oh, emergency coming, and they prepare the body to deal with that emergency. That's why they're called the fight or flight hormones. So you're a paleolithic a dude and you're hanging around the campfire and here comes a woolly mammoth and it's charging you, you need a lot of things to happen to deal with it because you're going to have to either run up a tree or grab a club and start fighting. And both of those are going to require your body, number one, to have some sugar in the bloodstream. So the stress hormones, first thing they do is get some sugar in the bloodstream. Second thing they do, raise your heart rate. Third thing they do, get all the blood away from areas where you don't need it. You don't need to be digesting food now. So what does it do? It diverts the they, these hormones divert the blood from the stomach and the gut where you're digesting and they get it to the arms and the legs where it's going to be needed. They divert it from the reproductive uh, organs. You certainly don't need to be making babies when you're trying to avoid being lunch. So these hormones prepare you for an emergency and they do a great job of it so that you can run up the tree, like I said, or fight off the, the woolly mammoth. However, they are meant to be turned right the F off after the emergency is over. That's why the, the greatest book ever written on stress, written by the greatest stress neuroscientist I know of, Robert Sapolsky, wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And here's why they don't. Because all of that stuff happens for the zebra when he sees the lion. The blood pressure goes up and the heart rate and all that other stuff that, you know, kind of ages the body. And the zebra runs. And if he survives, guess what? He stops thinking about the lion that second and he goes back to grazing on the grass. So the stress hormones go back into retirement. But what we do is we sit there thinking about it like, mm. oh, my God, that, that lion. There, he's going to come any minute, except with us, it's not a lion. It's a deadline for a job. It's a deadline for a podcast. It's a fight with your wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, what, what, your partner, friend, what, a business associate. It's, um, it's dealing with the, you know, the phone company. It's financial insecurity, and it doesn't get turned off, and your body doesn't know the difference between fighting a woolly mammoth and fighting the traffic on the 405 freeway. So you've got this cortisol and adrenaline rushing through your body all the time, causing inflammatory responses, number one, weakening your immune system, because it's one of the things that constant levels of stress hormones do, shrinking a portion of your brain called the hippocampus, which is needed for memory and thinking, and here's the one that gets everybody atten everybody's attention, adding belly fat, because that's exactly what cortisol does. So uh, the long-term effects of elevated stress hormones ain't good. They make every condition worse. They weaken the structure, the infrastructure that's your body so that you're less able to fight things off. Um, they, uh, it, 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 it can bring on an attack of many different conditions. For example, herpes can be brought on by stress. There's a lot of things that can be brought on by stress. It makes recovery from an illness slower. 
Um, and, and it just really on many different levels ages us mm. and, and contributes to health. So, and, and, and we can't get rid of it. So I, I think the action here is kind of learning to manage it and come full circle. You asked about psychology. Uh, because most of managing stress has to do with the brain and and maybe you know not learning over years or decades of time to what battles are worth fighting and what aren't which things really matter and which don't how to allocate your resources so that you know you're not in major battles every hour of every day but you know you kind of pick your battles um learning gratitude which is my number one lesson for for stress reduction, I mean, you want an instantaneous, you know, cheap, free, easy, you can do it, anyone who can do it, gratitude. When you're in an attitude of gratitude, I hate to use that attitude, <laughs> I can't even believe it. When you're, at, when you're thinking about gratitude, when you're writing a gratitude journal, you're listing the five things that morning that you're most grateful for, that attitude is incompatible with anger. Mm. That physiology is incompatible with anger. That's why people tell someone who's having an angry fit or about to go into a rage, take a deep breath, count to 10. Because taking a deep breath is incompatible with that. So you're, what you're doing when you're kind of handling, when you're, when you're doing gratitude is you are dealing with stress um, from the portal of your physiology. You are actually, by thinking about gratitude, you are changing your physiology and lowering your stress hormones and, and increasing your, your uh, parasympathetic nervous system, which, you know, is all the nice, soft, uh, rest and digest stuff rather than the, you know, attack uh, stuff. And, and I think that these are things that people can learn to do. Um, I personally was never able to meditate. I started uh, it'll be in July, two years. So at age 70, I started to meditate. I, I actually learned how to do it <laughs> and, and took a course in it. And I've been doing it 98% of the time ever since. But up till then, it was in, I couldn't even imagine how I could sit still and quiet my mind enough. So what I did was I learned little kind of hacks, like my, a four-minute meditation, mm. which isn't even a meditation minutes of deep reading, which I could do at my desk. I wrote about it in a couple of books, and I, I still recommend it. Yeah, anyone can do this. You sit at, wherever you are right now. You sit, you put your palms on your knees facing up, you take a deep breath, you close your eyes, you set your iPhone timer for four minutes and just breathe deeply. Don't even worry about clearing your mind. Just, just breathe deeply. You can work up to where you try to just not think about too much stuff. Or just think about gratitude. And if you do that a few times a day, that is a great way to get into this and to be able to like have a little bit of time to let some steam off, lower some stress, get a little perspective, get some slower brain waves going. And I think that's I think that's such a central part of health that I, I don't know anybody, you know, any of my colleagues who I admire who are doing this kind of work who have not incorporated this stuff into their work. I mean, nobody wants to talk about weight loss anymore. They want to talk about the entire body and they want to talk about digestion and the gut and they want to talk about stress because people realize that not only does it put on weight, it, but it really makes a lot of things much worse. So you really need, this is not something to be ignored in a health program. Johnny, we, we've talked about psychology at the head of the show. You just talked about it again. And I just want to take you back to, because people hear successful people like yourself on these shows and some would go, yeah, it's fine for you, mate. You're 72, you're fit, you're healthy, you've got, you know, great life going on, you're a successful author. 
it hasn't always been that way. And what I'd like to do is just talk about the psychology of how you approach looking back at your past. And when you were a musician on Broadway, you were hanging out with other musos and actors and you were addicted. You're an alcoholic, you're addicted, and you were in a pretty dark place at times. Like you were, you were, it was rock and roll. Yet today, when you describe that period in your own psychology, you say you're an ex-alcoholic, which is very different <laughs> to what people or how the authorities or people who run these courses would say that's not it's not the the dialogue you would use. Why no, do you use X as a part of the psychology for that? Well, first of all, I'm not this is not a recommendation for anyone else to do this and it's not it's certainly not a, a a judgment against the people who say I'm a recovering alcoholic 36 years after they've had a drink. I understand that. I went to AA. I I understand the thinking behind it. I I I get that. Um, I, that isn't the main thing I identify as. And to, to recovering means it's a daily battle of some kind. And it isn't a daily battle for me. I have alcohol in my house. I serve it to my girlfriend. I go out and, you know, when it's flowing freely, I just don't drink. And I, I, I and to identify, I just, there's something in my, I'm not, willing to go, hi, I'm Johnny. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm just done with alcohol. Like I'm done with it. So I mean, I was one time very, and I would be, I have no doubt one drink away from being addicted again, but I'm not going to take that drink. I'm just not. And there's, you know, I, I, as I say this, I understand that there are alcoholics listening to this who are going, Oh, what a, wow. That is so grandiose. Doesn't he realize? I do realize all that. But for me, that is, you know, there have been a couple of things in my life where I've made a decision and I've, it, it is unwavering. And that's one of them. I mean, um, that's one of them. So that's why I don't use that language. And it's, it's not because I don't understand why people do it. And I don't I respect why people do it. But I have chosen not to identify as recovering anything. I am very much in the moment doing what I'm doing and I'm just done with alcohol. So I don't, I, I mention my addictions to all those things, cocaine, heroin, all of them, simply to say, you know, you could say, well, he, he looks the way he looks and he has the life he has because he's got great genes. And I think I probably do have great genes, but the point is genes really only account for like 20% of yeah. it. And everything else I did, anyone who's listening and going, well, yeah, that would be easy for him with the good genes. There's nothing in that other 80% that I did that anybody can't do. And I, I think that that made the biggest difference. Johnny, how much is in that comment? Because when you say that, you say, I'm done with it. It's very definite. Like it makes me feel as though I absolutely believe in you and there is no there is just no option. There's no even doubt in my mind. I'm done. I'm done with it. How, how big a part is that for you? Because the staying on the path is the interesting bit. And I, I'm, I'm very curious about this when I talk to someone like you who's very definite about it. What, what's behind that? Because people go on the nutrition bandwagon, go to a conference, see some good food, fall off the wagon, someone goes to work, they get stressed, they've been really, really good, something bad happens at work, it's a downhill slope. And you hear this often, I was really good, I was going to the gym, then this happened, I fell off. Oh, and oh, where, oh, where is that staying the path? 
But I do the same thing. I mean, I, I, believe me, I am not anyone to emulate as far as discipline with diet. I mean, I've ne- I, I don't even get into ketosis. I have friends who have wear continuous glucose monitors, and I mean, they are serious about this stuff, and they do not. I I have never been that kind of. I, I'm just I haven't been, and it's not that I don't admire it, but I have figured out for myself exactly how much quote-unquote cheating you can do with food and uh i i believe it's really for me more about the patterns of eating the 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 kind of what's in in heavy rotation not about whether i have pizza once in a while or anything like that um and so i do fall off wagons like that i'm but i don't fall off the alcohol one because that one is not that's not one i'm not first of all i'm not I'm not tempted to do it. It has nothing but negative memories to me. My, I, there've been a couple of times that by accident over the decades, you know, I, I picked up the wrong, the Michelle's drink looked just like mine. I may have picked it up and I literally get, no, I mean, I, I want to run to the bathroom and throw up. So it's not something like I'm going, looking at the cheesecake going, <laughs> man, that looks good. Maybe I'll just give myself a little bit of taste of freedom for one night. I don't feel that way with all. I go, I, you know, I just don't. So, um, but on the other hand, I am not. I'm not taking the high road here. We have uh, we have um, legalized medical marijuana in California and many other states. I am a user of CBD and of uh, THC from time to time. That is my relaxation. Um, and you know, maybe that's maybe, you know there would be those who would say, "Well, you just substituted one for the other." <laughs> I, I'm not so sure. I, I was never functioning the way I'm functioning now when I was drinking. I can tell you that. So I, you know, I am not. I am not a fanatic about any of this. About either diet, about exercise programs, about um, you know the definition of sobriety. I, I really do believe, and this is you know, I, I if I would ever play the age card ever, which I try not to, I would say this is this is you know thirty years older than most of my audience. And the benefit of that experience has told me that the the action is in finding your own path. That the the, the search for these perfect programs, whether it be the perfect diet or the perfect um, any of them, um, they are they're tools and guidelines. But eventually, the actual thing that gets woven together that's going to work for you, that's your particular combo of all the things you and I are talking about today, whether it be meditation or stress reduction and food and exercise and all the relationships. And your Each person's combo, magic formula for that is going to really be different. And the best teachers, teachers can do is help people ask the right questions along the way. And the first question that they should not ask is what's the perfect diet because there's no answer to that. And and once you start to, you know, people find it difficult to give up the notion that there is an answer to all these questions. Um, there was a, a great psychologist once who wrote a book about that. He called it the escape from escape from freedom. And he was talking about the appeal of, for example, Nazi regimes and things like that, and authoritarian regimes, because they take away a lot of choice. They just, this is how it's done. Okay, good. That's easy. My, my puppy loves that also. But it's, it's scary to have the freedom to know that like dairy might be fine for you or it might not be. And, and some people are going to be able to drink coffee and go right to sleep and other people are going to take a Valium and they're going to go out and party. And there's that kind of biodiversity, if you will. And and I think when people can embrace that there really isn't a way to do this, it's their way. And 
you know, look at it more as an, a journey. That's why I've ended every book that I've ever written with three words, enjoy the journey, because it is a journey and there is no real perfect roadmap. There's just a bunch of guidebooks. If I take you back those 30 odd years to the fork in the road for you, we're on Broadway, it's rock and roll, you are using, you are playing in front of audiences who admire what you're doing, you're hanging out with cool people, you're unhealthy, but you're thinking at the time, this is cool. You just mentioned asking a question. If, if I took you back to that time with what you know now and you put your arms around that Johnny 30 years ago, what would be the question you would ask yourself at that time? Um, I didn't ask myself a lot of questions at that time. Except <laughs> <laughs> what, would you, uh, what, what would you ask yourself back at that time now? Not sure how this will sound, but I don't have any questions to ask myself at that time because I have asked every damn one you can imagine and examined it from every possible point of view. And I, I'm pretty sure I knew what I was thinking about everything that I'm not particularly, you know, proud of it or, 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 you know, I don't recommend it, but I pretty much know how I thought then. I've examined it under the microscope for, you know, decades. And um, so I, I, don't, I don't really look back on my earlier incarnations and think, oh, God, if I had only done this. I, I get that if I had done certain things differently, I'd probably be in a very different place. But I, I can't honestly say that there's anything that I, I might shorten some of those periods, you know, but, but if one of them, I can't imagine being who I am without them. They shaped me. <laughs> so I'm, I guess from the vantage point of 72, I can tell you that what you think about an experience you're going through now may be very different than how you view it from uh, 10 years from now, when it may in fact be a step, you know, the, the, maybe some of the most challenging times some people who are listening to this are going through right now will turn out when you look at them from hindsight to have been life changing in a good direction and very, very important. I can, seen that so many times I can't count. So hang on if you're going through that now, because I certainly don't look back on those times now with, uh, you know, oh God, I wish it were different. I wish I had done this different. That was so stupid. I, I look at them all as shaping um, who I am now. If you just do it back 10 years ago, because you're in the midst of this journey through nutrition and wellness and health, how has your ideology of health changed, say, in the last 10 years? Has it? Um, I think it's broadened and deepened as I realize all the different things that can impact our health that we're just learning about the microbiome is relative. I mean, we, I didn't even know how to spell the microbiome when I got into the field of health and nutrition. And the, the research is exploding on the connection between our gut, which is the microbiome, the gut ecology, and just about every disease you can mention. So, of course, it's expanded. I think... It grew from a kernel of distrust of conventional wisdom to a certainty that conventional wisdom is full of it. I, I just, you know, I, I, um, I don't know that it's that it's. Um, I never had a roadmap to health. I mean, maybe in the beginning, I thought, oh, if you follow this is the diet to follow, and this is the exercise program to do. I've got to do, you know, alternate groups on weights Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Or you got to do cardio, and you got to do this. I had very definite ideas early nineties. But, uh, you know, I, I think my entire life and career and, and in and out of fitness and health or in and out of nutrition and health and in other aspects of my life as well have all been about, 
you know, expanding this notion that every individual is frighteningly different. And, and there is just no possible way to give a perfect roadmap for that. And I think the action, the greatest gift we can give students is to have the strength to ask those questions and be willing to look at the answers for themselves and live with them and know that they are the right answers for them and not necessarily do, you know, a, a like count on Facebook to find out if they're going in the right way, but to actually learn to ask those things for themselves and answer them for themselves. And then, you know, be willing to look at what works for you, even though it doesn't, I mean, me eating pizza pre- periodically doesn't fit into anything I've ever recommended or anything I've ever aspired to. I figured out how that after all these years, how to do that without upsetting my health or my weight. Not everybody I figured out how to live without alcohol. I mean, there's there are things you adjust to and learn. And, you know, at the end of the day, if, if things are going in the general direction you want them to, I, I'm not an obsessive watcher of every, you know, the sales of every book. And the, I look at, at careers and lives a little like the stock market. Look at the general direction. Is it going in the direction you want it to go? I mean, there's going to be ups and downs and the pathways are going to be, you know, loaded with challenging periods and stock market. But really over 30 years, is it going the way you want it to go? Because that's the question I think that I'm able to answer for myself in the affirmative. And I think that's, that's, is the thing that makes me the happiest overall. It's kind of going good. Johnny, I'm really, uh, conscious of our time. So I've got two, two more things to ask you. And one of them has to do with pizza. <laughs> now, <laughs> what I've heard you say is that pizza is one part of it. However, I've also heard you connect to that pizza, friends and people. And I've heard you talk about that and how the community you have, the socialising, the right people around you, actually is probably a bigger part of longevity, happiness, fulfilment, wellness and health than we really talk about. Community for you around that mealtime getting together, that actually is a significant part of our wellness, isn't it? I think it's the most significant. When I was putting together the syllabus for these courses I was teaching, one of which is anti-aging. It's kind of the course version of my book, The Most Effective Ways to Live Longer. I, I had a, 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 the chapter that summed it up with the things that were most important. It was food and exercise and supplements and detox. And then the last one was relationships. I now teach it in the, in the opposite order. Number one is what you just talked about. Number one is community. You know, you mentioned earlier the Blue Zones. Let me give you one of the most important findings from the Blue Zones. They did not all eat the same diet. They did not all do the same exercise. They did not all, uh, they weren't, you know, one was one of those five zones was vegetarian, the others were not. Uh, some ate seafood, some ate land. It was the only com- commonality among all those long-lived people. The only thing that stood out to all of them was in common, was their strong social fabric. And I'm not talking about Facebook friends. I'm talking about face-to-face, community dinners, uh, gardening, square dinners, I don't care what it was. These people lived in relationship with other people. You know, scientists would love to study some long-lived people who got full of energy who are 75 or 80 or 90 or 100 living in the woods in Montana or some remote area of Australia. They'd love to. Problem is, they don't exist. They don't exist. And so I I honestly believe um, 
that that power of connection and community and engagement with other people and with things bigger than yourselves and with things outside yourself is probably the single most life-giving force that you can tap into. Um, I think it dwarfs food and exercise. And not that those aren't vitally important, but you take all those without that element of relationship and connection and community and you don't really have a healthy person. Johnny, just to wrap this up, what's the greatest compliment somebody could give you? That I'm hot. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. There's the Um, the promo for the show. (laughs) I I think, I think that, um, I, I guess that I've moved them in some way that I've changed your life in some way for the positive, that something I read, something I wrote, something I spoke about years ago that I've long forgotten, something that I did that I thought just went into the ether, actually landed, made a difference, and changed someone's life for the better. That would be that and you're hot. (laughs) (laughs) In that order. Johnny, I have got still a page of stuff to ask you about, but I'm, I'm respectful of your time. I was going to say this has been an absolute treat. I, I really admire your enthusiasm for everything you do, your openness to share, the wisdom you've got of 72 years on the planet. And I think it's just, it's just such a joy to meet somebody who's got that enthusiasm for every part of their world from the bedroom to the boardroom. Who wants to be of service to others? It's just, it's fantastic. And I think the thing I love about podcasts is you just talked about community. That podcasts allow us to connect where media from the past probably wouldn't have allowed it, but allows you to connect with people and build a much bigger community for all of us. And I think, you know, part of this getting together is being able to meet people like you and share some time. So, mate, thank you so much. It's been a true honor. Oh, I, it, the honor and the privilege and the pleasure has truly been mine. And I, if I, I could be so bold as to invite myself back, I will tell you that if you would like to have me back, I cannot think of a better way to spend an hour. And I would be delighted and honored to be on your show anytime you like. We've got a pretty busy schedule, mate, but I think we'll squeeze you in somewhere. <laughs> Thank no, I you think, so much. I think uh, as soon as you mentioned pizza, Robbo lent into the conversation. <laughs> Johnny, where can people find out more about uh, you, your work, your books, the stuff you're doing, mate? It's my website, and there's no H in Johnny. Just put Johnny Bowden, B-O-W-D-E-N, and I'm on Twitter, and I answer people. So at Johnny Bowden, that'll do it. Are you one of those people that actually answer things on Twitter? That's um, a rarity these I'm- days. <laughs> I do. If, if yeah, I've gotten some good questions on there. I yeah. I, I, yeah. I like you know engaging. So sure. <laughs> sure. Why not? Sure. Why not? <laughs> my Australian friends. I have. I. I, <laughs> it, I. Yes. Twitter. Yes. Absolutely. Thanks, Johnny. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And anytime. I hope we talk again. We will. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. 
So there's a show you can take to the Withered Oaks Rugby Club. Yeah, I'll, I'll think of that episode next time I'm having a beer and a sausage sandwich after the game. Absolutely. With the 61 A's? <laughs> With the 61 A's, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> 61 A's, that's uh, gold. I've got to be honest, I'm into this stuff, but I'm not sure how that would go down with the rest of the team. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, to finish us up, uh, folks, we are running a campaign on Patreon, which is a very cool platform. And it's just for people to go on to who want to support a creative endeavour like our little show. If we are, as the Mojo Radio Show, if we are to continue to grow as a show and spread the Mojo vibe, we would love your help. This is not, and I stress, a not a profit thing for us, believe me. We have no sponsors, no advertisers, although we could have, but in all of our six seasons we've run free of sponsors and ads. But we just want to upgrade our stuff. We want to tell more people about the show if you do contribute through patreon.com, there are rewards. Oh, by the way, did um, Lofty say yes to coming on the show to talk about his book and <laughs> help us out? Uh, I was looking for Lofty the other day. I couldn't find him. Eventually, I did in the crowd. Um, and yes, he is going to come on the show and have a chat about his book and uh, have a bit of fun. The big man and the big voice of MasterChef worldwide, 180 countries, will be a guest mm-hmm. on our show. So... Uh, there are rewards. Lofty will be part of that. We're going to do special recordings for those who do wish to contribute and support the show. We hope you do. Uh, and it's just not a money thing. Like many podcasts have sponsors and they have advertising and all these things to put to line their pockets. This is not. We just want to get better stuff and to try and build the audience around the world to help people. So with that being said, to close the show, let's play a Get Well song for Stan Peak. Yeah, let's. Now, Based on today's show, I'm thinking people should finish the episode, get their journal and start to make some choices because it is your life and making the choices you make today can ensure that you live a long and prosperous life. And as you heard, Johnny, he's 72, he's full of energy and he is active from the bedroom to the boardroom. If we take Johnny's advice and he's a stirred, then we need to make the necessary changes to live our life now. And decisions you make today, right today after you finish the show, the decisions you make about food, movement, your habits, your thinking, the toxins we inhale, the decisions you make today impact you in five, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years into the future. It's your life. Make the call today. What song are we about to play? Lola, can you play Bow 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 Bow? John Bon Jovi warms my CPU. We're out. Sing <laughs> a song for the broken hearted. A silent prayer for fifty parted.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.